Pacific. Welcome back. It's kind of interesting to, interested to see who would actually wake up on time. Um, just a, a few words of welcome before we start our first panel. Um, uh, again, thank you to the Jack Miller Center and uh, Randall Hendrickson, uh, Arizona State, and, and Paul and Adam. Um, we certainly could not have done this without, without their help. Um, when we were discussing the, the themes of the conference, the themes were easy. We just picked three of Michael's themes uh, of his work. But the format, um, we thought instead of having, uh, asking folks to deliver sort of formal papers, scholarly papers, that we would uh, keep the remarks on the shorter side and just asked our panelists to, to comment on the, on the themes of Michael's work. They can, they're free to talk about Michael's contribution to these themes, but um, much like Michael himself, uh, let's have an interesting conversation on important themes. Uh, so the, the format of the panels um, uh, tried to uh, imitate uh, the, the great virtues of, of Professor Zucker himself. Uh, so our aim is just to have a conversation. We made the panels a little bit longer uh, so we could have a conversation not just uh, by the panelists but, but by the whole group. Okay? Um, so we'll have three panelists. We'll, we'll go about an hour and 45 minutes. We can uh, go a little bit long if we need to. We can cut it off a little shorter if, if we need to, to have coffee. Uh, restrooms are, as I think you know, um, just across the atrium and down the hall. Uh, pl please feel free to get coffee uh, as you like. Um, the event is, uh, is being uh, recorded, just so you know. Okay. Uh, our chair for the first panel is uh, my colleague, Mary Keyes, and she'll introduce our panelists. Thank you. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming. This is a wonderful event, except that Michael's retiring, <laughs> but we just have to, we have to accept that uh, at Notre Dame. And uh, I just wanna take this chance to say that, uh, as people pointed out last night, Michael's a wonderful graduate advisor. He's also been a wonderful senior colleague. I was an assistant professor, very new, when he and Catherine arrived. And they've been incredibly generous mentors. Michael was officially assigned as my departmental mentor. And uh, he went beyond the call of duty and, and still is my go-to person for reading drafts and giving very helpful critical feedback. So uh, it's a great chance to honor him and to say thank you uh, for all of us, but also especially for me. Uh, so I'm very pleased to introduce these distinguished panelists and so grateful that everybody could come uh, for this event. Uh, so we have first Bill McClay, who is the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair of History, and of History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma, where he is also a professor of history. A recipient of many teaching awards and honors, he has also been the recipient of fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Academy of Education. His most recent book, which is a very recent title, is entitled The Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Our second panelist is Professor Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Peter Myers is professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He has been a visiting scholar at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. His research interests include African-American political thought, classical liberal political thought, and the political thought of the American founding and civil war. 
Our third panelist is Professor Adam Seagrave of Arizona State University and a distinguished alumnus of our program. I'm very happy to welcome Adam back. Uh, he's the Associate Director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, as well as Associate Director of the Center for Political Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. He holds editorial roles at American Political Thought, published by University of Chicago Press um, and founded by Michael Zugert. Also at Starting Points and at Compass. His teaching and research focus on American political principles, including both their application in American political history and their antecedents in intellectual history. He earned his doctorate from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and last but definitely not least, we have Professor Lee Ward of Baylor University. Lee Ward is their professor, professor of political science at Baylor where he teaches political and constitutional theory. He previously taught at Campion College at the University of Regina and at Kenyon College. He's written on political theory of the founding and of the enlightenment periods, especially the thought of John Locke. And he and his wife, Anne, many of you are aware, edited a wonderful festra for Catherine and Michael a few years ago. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the title, Natural Right in Political Philosophy, right. yes. as essays in honor of Catherine and Michael Zuckert. So if you haven't had a chance to see that, I, I recommend taking a look at that volume. And thank you to Lee and Anne for editing it. <clears throat> okay, so, well, as, as uh, Phil Munoz pointed out, well, it's really an informal conversation in many ways, but we'll, we'll begin with our panelists. And if it's all right, I'll just go in the order that you're listed. And that would mean we begin with uh, Professor Bill McClay. Um, we, all, uh, we each only have a few minutes, so I'm, I'm going to put out in somewhat abbreviated form my thoughts. And I hope I haven't misunderstood the assignment because I, it's actually not about uh, Michael's work in any direct way, but it's an attempt to be uh, provocative without, in the, in the best sense of the word, the sense it's rarely used anymore, uh, to, pro to provoke thought and provoke conversation, uh, which is that that's actually what we're aiming at. So um, I want to put out two thoughts or several thoughts about uh, uh, the issue of free speech, uh, which is so much controverted at the moment. And I don't do it as a student of uh, constitutional law. Uh, maybe, if, maybe if I do it in any particular vein, it's as a student of first principles, uh, which I think would fit uh, this gathering. Um, I think some portion of the confusion and uh, uh, dilemma or perceived dilemma that we face today with regard to speech uh, might be better understood by recurring to first principles. Uh, so, so my two thoughts, uh, my two principles always come from thinking more closely about what we mean by the two words free and speech. And let me start with the second one. And here, uh, this might be my first controversial point, I, I want to express some disagreement, uh, mild disagreement, but disappointment with the Chicago principles, the much vaunted Chicago principles, which are called, you may, may remember, not the Chicago principles of free speech, but the Chicago principles of free expression. Uh, and this, I think, is not a small difference. Although uh, the, uh, the Chicago principles here follow in the footsteps of the Woodward report, the, again, a justifiably famous uh, and really quite fine report that uh, from a committee at Yale chaired by C. Van Woodward, the, the great American historian. Uh, it commits the same uh, 
Sin <laughs> of, uh, of it's, it's, a, it's a report on free expression and not on free speech. I, why do I insist on uh, the word speech? I think the justification for free speech is that it is speech. Uh, that speech is uh, a, uh, an, uh, something that has about it reciprocity, that is dialogic in character. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's directed to a uh, to a to a social context, to uh, a conversation, if you will. Um, speech has a special dignity, um, as Aristotle and others understood. It, it is the human gift, par excellence. It's the medium by which we engage in rational deliberation, uh, the way we argue, the way we speculate the way we work things out together, solve problems, state and apply moral principles, principles of action. It's the means by which we're able to be political animals in Aristotle's sense, not just animals that live together, but animals that deliberate together. I think we've been losing steadily a sense of this special dignity, special province of speech. Speech occupies a sort of middle zone between thought and action. It's a kind of buffer zone where in which, within which we can consider together things prior to acting on them. The whole idea of free speech depends on speech being situated in and mostly confined to this middle zone. Uh, if it's too close to being pure thought, it, uh, obscures the possibility of, of uh, commonality. If it's too close to action, then it would no longer be provisional in character. Expression, however, the word expression as opposed to speech, is something very different. It is a romantic term, an emotion-laden term. It refers to forms of communication that may or may not be verbal and may not be part of a deliberative process. The etymology of the word suggests this. It's pressing out. Ugh, expressive liberty tends to be this sort of one-way thing. You know, when you express the, the oil from the bean, it doesn't go back. Um, it's a monologue. It's a cry of the heart. It is, for those of you old enough to remember, the Sammy Davis Jr. song, I Gotta Be Me. Uh, it's not a contribution to the collective deliberation about the truth. It's my voice my truth, my narrative, and it must be heard. I'm kind of feeling a little bit that way myself at the moment. <laughs> Freedom of expression in that sense is not clearly what the founders and framers had in mind with the First Amendment. Um, part of the, and, and I'm not proposing to deal with the issues of constitutional law here. I'm, I'm flying above them. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the problem we find today is that we have ex we've confused speech and expression. And here are a few more provocative examples. Were the, uh, the, the American Nazis marching through the streets of Skokie engaging in speech or expression? What about a gesture like flag burning? Is it speech or expression? If these things are speech, what exactly are they saying? Isn't it the point uh, of using an expressive gesture rather than words, precisely the fact that words can always be answered and contested and amended, while the gesture cannot be answered, except by another unanswerable gesture. You block me, I block you. 
you scream, I scream. Leave aside ice cream. Yes, I know you're all thinking ice cream. <laughs> it's too early in the morning for ice cream. <laughs> so much of the armory of present-day political protest is all about treatment of expression, taped-up mouths, armies of handmaids, stage screaming. I saw yesterday that we have a new uh, an economics professor who took her clothes off in order to draw attention to the lack of visibility of women in the economics field. Uh, uh, okay. Um, but we treat these things as if they were speech. And of course, I could multiply examples. We have a lot of fun doing this. This is the world we live in. But the point is, we've come to accept passively the idea that these expressive acts are forms of speech. But in fact, they're the opposite of speech. By equating free speech with free expression, we deny and diminish the special quality of speech as the medium of deliberation, as that middle ground between thought and action, as the instrument that enables us together to seek and test and validate the truth. And we miss the fact that free speech entails obedience to a whole set of procedural norms, which are the necessary ground of that freedom. So the word free. And the confusion also works in the other direction. Just as actions have become interchangeable with words, so words have become regarded as a form of action. This can take the narcissistic form of Twitter tweeting out a virtue signaling message, uh, Twitter being one of the worst things that ha has happened to speech and life in general in America. <laughs> but it can also have a sinister side. Back in uh, 2017, the famous Middlebury College episode with Charles Murray, uh, the students who were preventing him from speaking chanted, words are violence. Uh, a, a saying they extracted from Toni Morrison's 1993 Nobel Address, which is slightly different, but uh, oppressive language does more than represent violence, it is violence. So I actually think the students were fair in their redaction of her statement. <clears throat> in other words, speech can be a form of violence, and violence, as in the form of deplatforming and in, in the streets of Berkeley and elsewhere, can be a form of speech. What we've lost in this crazy formulation is a recognition that the realm of speech, properly understood and properly cared for, serves us as an essential buffer zone between thought and action, a holding pen or a neutral place where we can hold things out before ourselves in public and consider them together. It is the realm par excellence of civility. To make speech into action and action into speech is ultimately to negate the value of speech entirely. There's much talk of safe spaces in the contemporary academy, but words really are our principal safe space, since they are where dangerous things can be explored safely without immediate consequences. This is especially the, the case with the academy and some of the mission of the academy. Woodward's uh, report at Yale had a, a wonderful phrase characterizing the academy as the place defending the right to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable. And we cannot have that. And I'm, frank, I'm afraid we don't have that uh, at all if we do not recognize the special status of words. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> to uh, address the theme of our panel, uh, 
liberalism's foundation and the crises of our time. I want to talk about rights. I want to talk about rights in a bit broader view. Liberalism at the moment of its launching, its classical moment, is a political philosophy of rights, fundamentally of natural rights, and the crisis of our time, at least one of them, could be understood to be a crisis in our understanding of rights. So I want to just say a few words in overview to describe that crisis and then uh, talk a little bit about Michael's contributions to addressing it. Uh, I begin by invoking one of the most formidable interlocutors to our rights philosophers, a man who by happenstance entered the rights discussion at roughly the same time as the man we gather to honor. Uh, I have in mind as our interlocutor not John Rawls or Richard Rorty or Alistair McIntyre, uh, but instead Detective Harry Callahan. Uh, for the younger members of the audience, do I need to add Dirty Harry by popular acclamation, who at a crucial moment in the movie uh, offered through clenched teeth this response to a DA's objection to the interrogation methods Harry had brought to bear on a suspect in a particularly vile crime. Said Harry, well, I'm all broken up about that man's rights. <laughs> Harry said more than he knew. Uh, <laughs> economically expressed, uh, there is our crisis about rights. Uh, uh, in a way, Harry is broken up about rights, and in similar and other ways, so are we, um, in at least these two ways. We are fractured in our understanding of rights, and in various portions of the population, as Bill just noted, we see signs of increasing disdain for rights claims, and much of that disdain bears some relation, direct or indirect, to the sentiment that uh, Dirty Harry Callahan expresses. Um, it's, uh, it, it's an old story, the, the story of rights, and its career could be conceived as something of a roller coaster ride uh, in the sense that it, it begins with a sharp rise and then it takes a steep drop and then there's another sharp rise and after the latter rise some harrowing turns raising in riders the fear uh, maybe not so thrilling that uh, the car at any moment will go hurtling off the rails that's that's where we are Historians of political thought, including Michael, have now traced the origins of rights language deep into the Middle Ages. Nonetheless, the, the idea of natural rights seemed to arrive on the political scene in a sudden burst of glory in the 18th century uh, in revolutions in America and France. And the underlying political philosophy was epitomized, of course, in the Declaration of Independence but the significance of this turn of events was maybe best captured in the Gettysburg Address, wherein uh, Abraham Lincoln implicitly characterized the U.S. as the Moses of nations, as the new nation that would serve as the bringer of a new moral dispensation, if not a new moral law, to humankind. Thus was conceived the natural rights republic. But even as the ink was drying on the Declaration of Independence, several powerful lines of criticism were queuing up. The first was theoretical. Natural rights lacked 
a stable philosophic foundation. Natural science made untenable any idea of a natural grounding for any moral principles. Uh, a second and a third line of objection were more practical or moral. The second was the contention broadly stated, rights are only rights if they produce the right results, meaning if they are effectual, if they're beneficial for everybody. One version of this is, uh, is Harry Callahan's. Uh, rights are only right if they enable the good guys to prevail. They can't be rights if the result is to protect the bad guys. A deeper version of that thought appears in Rousseau and Marx and the, and the American progressives. Natural rights, again, yield the wrong results. They allow another class of bad guys, capitalists, robber barons, malefactors of great wealth, uh, to dominate the little guy, the proletarian, the worker, the average man, the forgotten man. Natural rights in that line of argument are democratic in form and universal, and they're oligarchic in effect. The third line of criticism, in a way, is more profound. Rights are destructive not to a part of society, but to the whole of society. And ultimately, they're self-destructive. In that, uh, in, in that understanding, natural rights can't be real rights because they're dehumanizing in a deep sense, and they're destructive of civil society. In, in the primary version of that argument, natural rights are grounded in low egoism. They make comfort and security the overriding human priorities, and the result is a morally contemptible human type satisfied, stupefied, vulgarized, incapable of genuine nobility or virtue. The bourgeois who elicited scorn from Rousseau and Nietzsche, um, and who is said to lack the spirit and the sense of duty needed to sustain the constitutional order on which the security of rights depends. Battered by these objections, rights fell into disuse in liberal theory. That's the drop in our roller coaster car. And the rise again comes in the aftermath of World War II. But the rebirth or the advent of human rights post World War II was the product of a practical need, um, not of a theoretically satisfying response to the foregoing lines of objection. Hence the question uh, whether the beings, the rights rising anew here, have an actual rebirth or new life, or are instead more akin to the zombies that haunted the popular culture a few years ago and even wandered into some of Michael's own writings in the <laughs> to uh, mention only the main difficulty. Human rights have been grounded in a vague notion of dignity, the vagueness of which has brought forth seemingly endless proliferations of rights claims. And the difficulty in this is made obvious by an observation of Hobbes, where everyone has a right to everything, there can be no justice. 
and the proliferation of rights claims is bound to bring rights in tension with one another as the controversy over speech on campus suffices to demonstrate. Given this understanding of our present condition, it would follow what we need most of all are able rights talkers. And I venture to say, uh, of all the rights talkers and rights thinkers in recent decades, uh, Michael Zuckert is the most able and the most helpful and has shown this in various particular contributions uh, in the exposure of the vacuity of the modern concept of dignity, in his very helpful notion of a rights infrastructure, infrastructure of institutions of civil society, and above all in his challenging and original reading of the foundation of natural rights in Locke, in which, in which he develops a response to the objection to natural rights based on natural science, based on the, the, the is-ought problem. <clears throat> and in that last, uh, I say at the risk of stepping on toes in, uh, in our third panel today, he staked out a position of Midwest Straussianism. <laughs> great significance is to defend the first wave of modern political philosophy, at least its more moderate elements, against the, the orthodox Straussian teaching that the movement of modern thought inexorably culminates in nihilism. What remains to do, uh, maybe, is a, a fully elaborated defense of the liberal natural rights republicanism of the first wave against its most formidable modern critics. I don't know whether I've convinced Michael to write his next book about Dirty Harry. <laughs> if I haven't, uh, then a book that we have discussed about the capacity of Lockean natural right to withstand the critiques of later moderns, including Hume and Rousseau, would be maybe the next best thing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. And now we have Adam Seagreve. Thanks. Uh, so as I was reflecting on, on the theme of this panel, uh, liberalism's foundations and our current political crises, um, I, I kept going back to the old metaphor of the baby in the bathwater, right? And that's just seemed to me to, uh, to do a lot of work in helping me explain my thoughts about the relationship between these two things, the foundations of liberalism and where we are today. Uh, because it seems to me that, uh, that what we've done, um, and by we I mean sort of we post-Lockean moderns, not, not we in this room, uh, uh, but, but what we've done is uh, perhaps a particularly egregious uh, example of the, the, the baby and bathwater mistake, right? So, um, so not only have we thrown out the baby, uh, you know, which is the classic mistake, try to throw out the bathwater and end up throwing out the baby. Not only have we done that, but actually we threw out the baby and then we decided this bathwater is actually really great and we should, we should keep it and, uh, and we should nurture it and foster it and, and grow it and, uh, you know, treat it like, like our own, uh, you know, and so disturbing sort of, sort of image. But I think that's, that's what we've done in a way. Um, so, and on just to explain a little bit further then, and, and my comments will kind of flesh out what I mean by this, but... Um, the baby in this in this metaphor, in my, in my thinking of it, is 
is liberalism's foundation in a certain truth about human beings. Um, and this is a truth that I think Michael and his work has done uh, as much as, as anyone to explain uh, and fully and, and clearly, probably explained it more clearly than Locke himself. Um, <laughs> Um, so that's the baby, right? This truth about human beings that's at the foundation of liberalism. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. The bathwater, uh, on the other hand, is a combination of incorrect opinions, uh, perverted dispositions and attitudes, harmful political cultural trends, uh, out of which, I think, our current political crises, however we want to define them and describe them, have arisen like a sort of dirty film sitting on top of them, right? Um, on, the, on the top of the, this bathwater. Um, so uh, so I'll, I'll kind of go through and talk about the baby a bit and the bathwater and, and how we can try to, try to draw a new bath maybe uh, in the future. So uh, the foundation of liberalism, in my view, and I think Michael's as well, although he doesn't put it quite in this way, uh, is the truth about human beings as foci of the moral universe. Uh, there are a lot of ways of putting this. Michael doesn't put it this way, but, uh, but foci of the moral universe. Um, so what does it mean to be a focus of the, the moral universe? Um, human beings can't be, each be at the singular center of the moral universe because none of us are responsible for the order of the universe or our own existence and place within it. But we are unique within this universe in our self-consciousness and in our ability to immaterially contain the entire world within ourselves through our understanding of it. Um, and this, I wasn't, I didn't have time to look back at the, the pre-Socratic philosopher who said this, but the mind is all things. It, that was somebody, right? A pre-Socratic. <laughs> yeah. Somebody said that, sort of the mind, right? <laughs> Maybe Parmenides, right. Right, the mind includes all things, right, or is all things. So, uh, so, so that, that seems, to me, seems to me right in a way, and, the, and that we're unique in that way in, in the universe. Um, so these two points of uniqueness. Uh, make every individual human being, I think, a focus of the moral universe in two corresponding ways. Uh, the first is through our self-consciousness, we own ourselves, and therefore, when someone violates or acts contrary to our self-ownership, they have both controverted the moral order of the universe and done an injustice to us, right? Um, and secondly, through our intellectual relationship with the world, a relationship of understanding, we actually mimic or mirror the relationship the creator of this world has or would have with it. And this, I think, is what St. Thomas is getting at with his account of the natural law on my, my reading. So in both of these ways, um, the, the claim is that individual human beings are uh, origins of moral order in addition to being uh, termi termini, terminuses of, of moral order, right? We're not just a terminus of of moral action. We're also an origin of moral action, and, and we're unique in that way um, in, the, in the universe. So, um, and, and I think that that's important and that in some ways at the foundation of liberalism, particularly the, the first, but, but both, I think. Um, so, and I agree with Michael that the idea of human beings as individual foci of the moral universe, as self-owning possessors of natural <laughs> rights, and as having a unique dignity and inviolability is an idea that is not fully expressed or understood by political philosophers until the early modern period. And I agree with him that John Locke is the thinker who first, or at least most influentially and persuasively, builds his political doctrines on this idea. So now on to the bathwater. Right? So I agree to a point with those, uh, some of whom may be in this room, um, 
I don't see Patrick here. Uh, Patrick is not here. No. Okay. Uh, but others agree with him, um, who argue that a number of very bad isms follow from the foundations of liberalism, as I've just described. Individualism, materialism, secularism, and moral subjectivism or relativism, right? Um, but these follow not in the sense of a logical consequence of liberalism's foundations, but rather in the sense of a natural consequence of liberalism's interaction with our human nature. So in addition to these dispositions, attitudes, and political cultural trends that follow as a natural, not logical, consequence of liberalism's foundations, the foundations of liberalism are also, to some extent, bound up historically with the neglect or rejection of previously understood truths about the world and human society by key modern thinkers, uh, leading to incorrect opinions about these things. So in this intellectual historical component of the bathwater is, is a very long, uh, long story. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to say a little bit more about the dispositions, attitudes, and, and political cultural trends. Um, the isms rather than the incorrect opinions uh, side of things. So I would argue that because human beings are the way they are, a full awareness, expression, and endorsement of liberalism's true foundations leads naturally and easily into individualism, subjectivism, relativism, secularism, and materialism. So liberalism's foundations, as I've described them partly in Michael's Lockean terms, depict human beings as godlike. Each of us is a self-owning focus of the moral universe with the ability to reflexively interact with ourselves in a manner mirroring a Trinitarian God's interaction with himself and to navigate this universe in a manner that mirrors the way in which a creator would have been expected to produce it through ideas, through understanding. And each of the harmful isms that grow naturally out of liberalism's foundations stem in some way, I think, from the geometrical error of mistaking the focus for the center, of mistaking our God-likeness for actual divinity. Locke actually hints at this in his first treatise when he says that, uh, and this is a, almost a quote, but I didn't look it up to double check, God makes man in his own image and likeness, an intellectual being, and therefore capable of dominion. And that's in the first treatise. He, he draws this connection between man being made in God's image and likeness, being an intellectual being, and being a, a source of property, right? capable of owning things, including uh, him or herself. So li liberalism's foundations in the truth of natural rights and human dignity is, for the believer, uh, an explanation of the biblical creation story, an elaboration of the way in which human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And just as in the biblical account, human beings' creation in the image and likeness of God leads naturally to the original sin of pride, and there's a, a theological knot there uh, for us. So in modern political history, human beings' increasing awareness, understanding, and application of the truth of human dignity and natural rights leads naturally to a variety of creative outgrowths of pride in our political society and culture. So I think that Michael and Patrick are both right, and thinking about this unlikely congruence um, <laughs> <laughs> suggests a possible way of resurrecting liberalism's foundations in a manner calculated to also ameliorate our current political crises of replacing the baby and getting some fresh water back in the tub. So getting the baby back, I think, involves, uh, there's a, that old, I keep thinking of that old Chili's uh, song. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sing it, but, but uh, 
So getting the baby back involves uh, recovering a true understanding of liberalism's foundations, as Michael's work has helped us to see them, innocence of the pathologies, distortions, and ill-conceived rejections of most modern thinkers. And this points, I think, to the need for improved education, education that reaches straight through the dirty bathwater of received modern opinions to primary texts, including pre-modern ones, so that we have, in Locke's terms, a reliable star and compass to steer by. And getting fresh water in the tub involves uh, influencing a transformation of dispositions, attitudes, and political cultural trends. Um, and this points to the need for a new religious revival or awakening to effectively reorient ourselves and our culture toward a center above and beyond us. And this is something, of course, Tocqueville expressed in, in different ways. But the need to, uh, to see that we're foci, but not, not the center. So these two things can go well with each other as they did for a while in colonial and revolutionary America. And I think that ultimately, it's only these two things or some version of them that uh, can rescue us from our current political crises. Thank you. Thank you, and now we have Lee Ward. Good morning. I want to thank Professor Munoz for inviting me to participate in this celebration of Michael Zucker. And of course, I cannot thank Michael enough for his support and friendship over the years. His scholarship has had an enormous impact on my career. Michael's contribution to the study of liberalism is massive. But in my view, perhaps two things stand out most prominently. First, I see Michael's greatest contribution to our understanding of the launching of liberalism as his unique presentation of the psychological depth of the liberal individual, who is a creature shown under Michael Zuckert's guidance to be much richer and infinitely more compelling than the historicized and reductionist caricature we saw in a previous generation with Pocock's civic humanism, C.B. McPherson's possessive individualism, or Leo Strauss's joyless quest for joy. In my view, one of the main reasons why Zuckert's account of liberalism is more powerful than these others is because he bridges the methodological gap between the Anglo-American and the continental traditions of thought. By approaching the natural rights theory through a modified Hegelian account of human self-consciousness, in my view, Zuckert illuminates a more sophisticated phenomenology of rights claiming than what we typically see even from liberalism's erstwhile defenders who often settle for banal empiricism and complacent moral assumptions about equality. Banal and complacent are not terms we used, ever used to describe Michael Zuckert's account of the intellectual basis of human freedom. The liberal individual in Zuckert's account is an object of wonder. Confidently striding off the pages of Locke, Jefferson, and Cato's letters, we see the liberal individual as a morally complicated, psychologically edgy, and not wholly unproblematic human personality, just conflicted enough to be really interesting. <laughs> the second main contribution I believe Michael has made to American academic life relates not just to what he says, but also to how he says it. Michael Zuckert has been a fearless warrior in some of the most important scholarly battles among political theorists in our time. But Michael is exemplary to me as a happy warrior who never descends to mean-spirited ad hominem attacks or sectarian squabble. This panel invites us to reflect upon the foundations of liberalism and our current political crisis. So in the time remaining, I'd like to say a few words about the crisis albeit not political in the traditional sense, but nonetheless the politically significant crisis in contemporary higher education. 
channeling the spirit of the happy warrior, I would like to offer a few Zuckert-inspired, though not necessarily Zuckert-endorsed, <laughs> remarks about one of the most important forms of freedom central to the crisis confronting the university in modern liberal democratic society. This is, of course, the principle of academic freedom. To start, it may be useful to distinguish between academic freedom and free speech, which we heard about earlier, which is, of course, a civil right extending broadly into the general public. Academic freedom pertains primarily to professors in a higher education setting. Academic freedom is also distinct from the issue of free speech on campus. These highly publicized events or canceled events, civility codes, trigger warnings, are eye-catching, but ultimately are only significant or most significant insofar as they refer back to the more fundamental issue of academic freedom. If we need to define the concept, perhaps the 1940 American Association of University Professors statement, on principle, statement of Principles on Academic Freedom and Tenure is the best place to start. This statement rooted academic freedom in the freedom to teach, express opinions, and conduct scholarly inquiry without interference from university administrators or government officials. The institutional embodiment of academic freedom since that time has been the system of tenure and the principle of collegial governance, which requires meaningful faculty involvement in defining and promoting the academic mission of the university or college. What do I mean by the crisis of the contemporary university? The crisis of the contemporary university involves the erosion of the legal, social, and even professional commitment to academic freedom in recent times. While many of us are fortunate enough to be a part of institutions that have not lost their sense of the academic mission, we likely all know colleagues in institutions in which there are depressingly routine examples of the academic mission of the university, once, dubbed, or once defined as the free search for truth and its free expression, being replaced by what has been dubbed the all-administrative university. This new model university has several distinct features that cumulatively erode academic freedom. First, in campuses all across the English-speaking world since the 1980s, we have witnessed the stunning increase in the size, prestige, and power of the administrative bureaucracy. It is not uncommon nowadays to find institutions in which the total spending on academic and administrative salaries are equal. That is, for every dollar spent on frontline teaching faculty and researchers, another dollar is spent on administrators and support staff, who rarely, if ever, see an actual student, teach an actual course, or present a paper at an academic conference. When retiring, academic lines and are terminated and academic programs dissolved while we are told every administrative position is mission critical, that is an attack on academic freedom. We have also seen the gradual decline of faculty senates and faculty councils that were once the cornerstones of collegial governance, now enervated by centralizing administrations, obsessed with the pseudo-corporate ethos of branding, public relations exercises, perpetual strategic planning, and morale-destroying academic program reviews that inexorably tear down the liberal arts core of the historical university. The crisis of the contemporary university is also a product of the audit culture in which faculty are subject to ever-increasing surveillance and to quantitative performance metrics designed by human resource managers that bear little or no relation to what faculty actually do. The audit culture impinges on academic freedom in myriad ways. Finally, the crisis of the contemporary university is coincident with the decline of tenure. As recently as the 1970s, 80% of full-time teaching faculty were tenure or tenure track, while today in many institutions the figure is much lower. So let's take stock. The two core features of academic freedom, tenure and collegial governance, are under assault by the audit culture and the pseudo-corporate ethos of the all-administrative university. This is grim stuff. 
But recall Michael's example of the happy warrior. Is there anything positive in this situation? Well, of course. First, reflecting on the idea of academic freedom can be a liberating experience in itself, as we learn to appreciate the historical contingency of the modern American university. The professional academy characterized by tenure and some degree of collegial governance is really only about 100 years old. Recognizing this helps us avoid the naturalistic fallacy of thinking as it has been, so it must always be, world to that end. And Michael Zucker's <laughs> phenomenology of rights claiming calls upon us to ask hard questions about whether academic freedom belongs to individual scholars, or as current case law suggests, does it reside in institutions? Second, while it can be frightening, it can also be invigorating to recognize the enormous scope of the changes rocking the academy. These are massive social, economic, political, and cultural forces of practically Hegelian dimensions. <laughs> Needless to say, I doubt that the effects we are experiencing now are simply the aftershocks from the 2008-2009 financial crisis. We likely need to look further <laughs> back at least to the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the process of globalization. Reflecting on the general principle of academic freedom gives access to a more strategic perspective, allowing us to appreciate the systemic nature of the changes our profession is experiencing. What then is to be done by we happy liberal warriors if we are to preserve academic freedom? Our national and international professional organizations can probably do more to promote the study of and commitment to academic freedom among scholars. Perhaps APSA could allocate a number of panels at every conference for research devoted to analyzing the changes taking place in higher education. Maybe we need to rethink the accreditation system can you really be a university who don't offer a degree in English or have a philosophy department? Maybe we need to reconsider nonprofit status for educational institutions that simply ape commercial enterprises. In the face of the crisis confronting the contemporary university, we may need to rethink what we understand the academic vocation to be. For me personally, while I have found the academic life very rewarding, there have also been disappointing things I did not anticipate and that I suspect were not true during the golden age of the post-war university. And I worry that young scholars just starting out today will confront challenges even more difficult than it was for my generation, as the crisis of the contemporary university only expands and deepens. But despite it all, I draw from the example of Michael Zuckert confidence and hope that the academic profession will remain one of the best ways of life for a free human being if only we are prepared to fight to preserve the academic freedom central to our idea of the examined life. Thank you. Okay, well, I'd like to ask Michael Zuckert if he has any comments or reflections to open our discussion. Uh, well, the first is I hope you all noticed that I changed my shirt. <laughs> One of the most embarrassing moments in my life is when I got down from the stage up there and realized I had this huge stain of some peanut sauce, I think, on my shirt. But the photographer assured me that he was going to, uh, you know, whatever you do to that. But I don't know if you can do that to your eyes and memory. So you would do so. I, this is a different kind of panel than normally prevails at such things. And so I had no idea in advance of what these people were going to say. Uh, and so therefore I had no thought of preparing something in advance. Uh, and I defined to myself probably the best thing I could do was to keep track of the fake news that was spread out here. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, actually, no, not, well, <laughs> several things struck me that I disagreed with. A lot of things struck me as pretty interesting. And I thought, if I had a hand in sort of stimulating that, that's something to be proud of. So I, 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 that, that's my dominant takeaway from the conversation. I thought these were really terrific, terrific comments, which went well beyond or in different directions or supplementing, filling in, doing something rather to what I had done in my work. And uh, so I, I'm not ready with a re refutation or even a, a response like, yeah, right on, you were right. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but I am, I am pleased to have been part of the intellectual career of these gentlemen here. I'm going to leave it at that. Well, at this point, we invite questions and comments, discussion from the floor. Um, Professor Keyes. Oh, yes. Um, I've just been asked to pass the microphone around so whoever's speaking so we can for the recording. Sorry. Okay. One brief comment. Uh, I thought this was the best panel on contemporary affairs I've ever attended. Uh, I'm serious about that. Uh, and it, it's a tribute to Michael that, that he stimulated this. Uh, and I actually think that the papers fit together pretty well and that you should publish them. Uh, and I think you should publish them quickly because they, they, especially the first paper and the last paper, address a crisis that is really now quite deep. Uh, my former university has just been taken over. Uh, any of you uh, with an interest in this should uh, Google City Journal colon Jacob Howland. And you will, you will, you will discover uh, a liberal arts institution being turned into a STEM university where all of the people in the humanities will go in one division called the Division of Humanities and Social Justice. Uh, and you can, so on the one hand, it's all business, STEM. And on the other hand, the humanities have become indoctrination. It's really astonishing. Um, uh, but I do have a question, and I'm going to direct it at Michael, um, because as, as, as those of you who know me know, I'm from Hillsdale College now, which means uh, I, I'm in the bastion of uh, West Coast Straussianism situated in the Midwest. Um, and uh, in, in the last few years, I have discovered that Tom West uh, agrees almost entirely uh, with Michael. Uh, which suggests to me that perhaps Michael is a Trojan horse <laughs> of West Coast Straussianism in the Midwest, dressed up as something else. So I'd like to ask Michael if he could distinguish his Midwest Straussianism from West Coast Straussianism. That's a great question. That's an interesting question. Uh, Harry Jaffa actually was a very important part of my, my own just intellectual development for, of whatever interest that might be to anybody. Um, and I mean, it's a little harder to specify exactly what he meant to me, but I spent a lot of my career trying to refute him. Uh, <laughs> but also, in, I mean, I, I think I took away quite a few things from him as well. Um, but as a West Coast, I mean, I, I don't really see myself in that role, Paul. <laughs> uh, Although I did, I just got a, I just got an extremely nice letter from uh, 
here I am sounding like Trump. I got a really nice letter from <laughs> Kim Jong-un. You know? <laughs> he loves me. <laughs> and of course I love him back. <laughs> uh, but I got a very nice letter from Larry Arn, who was another former student of mine, um, who's, uh, one could argue, has made good in the world, um, just like these other people here. Um, and uh, he's invited me up to Hillsdale this fall, uh, coming fall, and so I guess I have that much in common with the West Coast Straussian brand. Um, but in general, no, I guess I can't assign, uh, accept that definition. Or, Thank you. Um, this was a really provocative, interesting panel. And I'd like to pick up on a couple of themes that ran through um, the, the presentations with respect to the modern university. Um, uh, Professor McClay wanted to argue against the idea that speech is action or violence. And I also heard the term trigger warning. And uh, Professor Ward talked about the liberal individual as being psychologically conflicted. And from my position in the university, what I've been seeing is if we want to fully address what's going on in the university and what is limiting um, speech and academic freedom, it's psychology to a large extent. It's the extent to which um, students are in therapy and administrators in particular and faculty are expected to be therapeutic. And so um, students are reacting or see themselves as reacting negatively to speech because it's violence committed against them in a very idiosyncratic way. So we have, to, speakers have to be very careful about saying something that involves race, class, or gender or also some type of violence that may have been perpetrated against an individual student in the past. So reading works about that contain depictions of violence or rape um, are very sensitive topics. We have to have trigger warnings. And so I'm just wondering if anyone has an idea there about how to um, address this, because I think in order to, to um, see where we are, I think um, we have to, to take this on. And I'm wondering if you, anyone there has any thoughts on that. Thank you. I'll, I'll jump in first. That, uh, that's a wonderful uh, observation about psychology having become the, 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 the if we're in a, a sort of neo-puritanical era, era, that the psychology is the trump card, that right. any argument to be made uh, that offends against uh, regnant pieties also becomes an offense against somebody's psyche, right. uh, and you you just, you can't go there. And there's a body of clinical data for whatever ailment <laughs> you want to prove that experts have shown that if you utter this word or if you uh, bring Charles Murray onto campus, people will break out into hives. So you can't allow that. Uh, <clears throat> there was an e a part of the episode at Middlebury that I think is, and you have to forgive me. I'm going to use a trigger warning. Uh, some bad language, HBO language. Um, <laughs> um, the the uh, president, the rather ineffectual president of Middlebury, um, said, well, you know, we, we need to develop rhetorical resilience in our students. She used this phrase. And uh, so the students responded with uh, one of their slogans was, 
fuck rhetorical resilience, <laughs> which is both, um, I mean, it's an example of expression, I think, rather than speech, in my sense. But it's both a, a, uh, uh, a kind of um, inarticulate cry uh, saying that we have no answer for that. Uh, but it's also a confession of an inability to to um, to adopt that kind of personality. I mean, this is where I think Michael Zucker's work definitely comes in, is because that what we need to make the regime of free speech, mm -hmm. of academic freedom, uh, uh, work is a certain kind of individual, a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of liberal individualism that is not uh, atomistic, or uh, you know, as any of the sort of um, opponents who will go nameless would say, um, but that it's 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 both connected and and not connected. It it it, it is uh, Van Woodward. Uh, I keep coming about the Woodward report. It, it is it is uh, there's so much about it that is that is worth reading. And one of the things he says, uh, and I'd actually be interested if Lee has any comments about this, any thoughts about it. The academic life, people should understand academic life is different in that, you know, all of your friendships with people are uh, in some way contingent on this higher principle of peer review. We are always, you know, um, looking uh, over one another's shoulders. We're always judging. We're always, uh, everything you, you say is subject to someone in the audience, some Paul Ray jumping up and saying, no, you're wrong, and here's 15 reasons why. And, and uh, we have, that's, that's what we have to live with. I, I have to live with the fact somebody may re refute everything that I've said right in front of everybody. And in the pursuit of truth, I accept that. Because that's, that's part of my talk I didn't get to, but the, free speech means nothing if we don't have a conception. Everyone from Milton on down has had the notion that we have free speech because we are searching for the truth, which exists. Uh, all of those kinds of, of, of uh, things have to be brought into play. I, I don't want to monopolize, but there's one other thing I want to say that, that, that Lee's comments uh, made me think of. is that Remember the incident at... Um, Yale at Silliman College, where the, uh, Nicholas Christakis and his wife were accosted and, and basically run off campus um, over Halloween costumes. And, uh, and one of the young women who uh, also used some HBO language uh, on, in his face <coughs> says, you, you're, it's your job to make this a home. It is, it is not a home for us. We do not feel at home. Since when is that the job of higher education to make people feel at home? Well, it is the way we've sold higher education as a community. And a community means something warm and accepting where you're never challenged, where everything you're affirmed in every way. You can't give offense. If you give offense, you've committed the cardinal sin of neo-Puritanism. So uh, we've done this to ourselves, I think, by the way we have come to market higher education as a as a warm cozy look at the the the, uh, the uh, what not, not called but uh, face view or uh, view book the view books for your own institutions look, look at how they sell your institution whether it's Baylor or University of Oklahoma or whatever it's it's this is this is where you're going to find the greatest sense of community you ever had our office of basically uh, uh, affirmative action, equity, uh, diversity hiring, is called the Office of Community. Can I yeah, jump in a little, just a couple of quick thoughts about that. Um, Vicki, I think that's a, 
that's a very interesting observation about psychology being at the at the root of this. I, I would maybe push it back a little bit further. I mean, two two thoughts. One is kind of abstract. Um, in keeping with uh, one of the themes of the panel, I think that's partly a question about the that raises questions about the integrity or the stability of the liberal responsible self that that Michael has uh, has defended. I mean, one way of thinking about it is kind of a it, it signifies a sort of a victory of Hobbes over Locke, you know, that the, the students are Hobbesian in, in the sense that they're much more concerned with their security than they are with their than they are with their liberty, you know. Uh, but but. But the fears of security, and this is this leads to my second observation, are 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 imaginary, or really, are, or ideological is a, maybe a little more precise way to put it. And so the the pushing it further back is to ask, what is this ideology that's driving the corruption of the university that Lee was talking about? Um, and I think that what we need to see in this is that virtually all of this, maybe I overstate a bit is a function of the post-civil rights movement world. That, that uh, the, the derailment of the civil rights movement has produced the diversity regime, uh, which accounts for a lot of the emphasis on the, the, the student support. I mean, it's done things, bad things to academic standards. It's created, therefore, uh, a need for you know, certain kinds of student support services. It's created majors, you know, programs of study that are purely ideological. Uh, um, and it's, and it's, it's tended to encourage students um, to be really fragile, to have this really fragile sense of them, of themselves, that you're, you know, you have, you have a class of people whose job depends on persuading students who may come to campus with their own set of vulnerabilities uh, that the world is organized against them, you know, and you really need to feel insecure, and so you need to feel the need for all this help that we're going to provide for you. I mean, so I think that that, uh, you know, the 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 anti-discrimination religion, so to speak, the anti-racism religion, is uh, is a big part of all of this. And if I could just quickly just follow up briefly, because uh, I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, question, too. Um, so uh, it seems to me, too, that some of the psychological vulnerability that we're talking about, I wonder whether, um, and this is to sort of put a, a sympathetic or charitable reading on, on you know, all of these things we're talking about with these students, but I wonder whether some of that psychological vulnerability could, uh, could come from a sort of, you know, insecurity, right, and a, a lack of awareness and understanding of, of who one is, you know, and, and what, what your place is in the world, that kind of thing, right, an existential sort of crisis that people experience when they don't know what a human being is or who they are, what human nature is, that sort of thing, and they don't know their place in the world. And so, I mean, as, as you know, as I said, the only being who can actually reflect on what it is um, to not know what it is, and to be able to you know, endlessly reflect on it and be kind of bound up in it is a, I, you know, I think that's a really, um, that's a difficult thing. So, I mean, I think that might explain some of the psychological vulnerability. Yeah. I'll, uh, can I just say a word or two? Uh, actually, um, oh, I mean, I don't want to plug my material, my own uh, writing, but I will. Uh, which is I recently... You can't do it here, where can you? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I recently, by coincidence, published an article on this topic of free speech in the universities, or free speech in general, in the uh, uh, journal National Affairs. 
And the topic, I can't remember exactly what my title was, but it was something like, is the problem of free speech insoluble? And my answer is yes, it's insoluble. So that gives you a tip off of what's going <laughs> with it. But in a little, it takes off from a distinction a little different from what Bill, uh, Bill McClay started with. And it touches on some of the themes that Lee touched on, but in a slightly different way. And which is to say, I begin with a distinction between thought and action and identify the problem that speech poses is because speech is a hybrid of thought and action, and that thought and action each generate different criteria of how they should be dealt with by public authorities and others, and how they should be dealt with in different contexts. That the context appropriate to dealing with speech in a university is different from the context appropriate for judging speech, and let's say, in a family or in a, in a corporation or on a football team, whether the players should be allowed to uh, kneel when the, when the uh, declaration is recited or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 well, all right. It's at Notre Dame, it happens at Notre Dame. Yeah, this is where the, the main rituals of American civil religion are played out is on the Notre Dame football field where they really do take these things seriously. Um, but I, I, I mentioned this because I tried to make an argument midway between, I think, what we're seeing here. So I argued that thought is about truth. And the home of thought is the university. And since, tr since what we aim at in dealing with thought is truth, the claims of truth in the university are absolute or near absolute. That's at least the argument I made. But I also try to make the case for taking maybe a generous spirit toward some of these complaints that we're talking about, the desire for sp safe spaces or things like that. I see those, one, they should never in a university setting trump the orientation towards truth. I think that's the dominant thing. But I would at least just, this is what I wanted to throw into this part of the conversation. I think to take account of student concerns that lead to like requests for safe spaces is actually to take account of them as beings with dignity who deserve our respect. If stu students do have problems with some things that come up, a student who has been raped, that is an issue for that student to live through a movie about rape or, or conversations about it. And while there are limitations, at least so I argue, on where we should you know, give way or where we shouldn't give way on those kinds of things, I still think it makes sense to treat everybody with a kind of respect that does give us a reason to try to take account of their sensitivities and sensibilities. Uh, and um, I don't know. We don't have to be such tough guys, I don't think. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I, you've given me permission to do this, Professor McClay, so I'd like to challenge something that you said, and that is the claim that what is going on here with students is a, as an individualistic claim. It's an expressive, individualistic kind of claim. So it seems to me it's not Thoreau at Walden Pond or even, uh, is it Timothy Leary on acid? It's not a 1960s claim. It's a group identity claim. 
And the way it's posed at my university is what is it? What is, what is the it that you're the uh, the, uh, um, the idea that you you're limited in the speech that you can say to me? Okay, that's the it, and you're limited because people like me, people people who are members of my group, gays, lesbians, uh, transgender people, were previously not let into this political community. Okay, now we've been let in. But if you want to keep us in, or the conditions under which we come in are that you don't say certain things that eliminate my existence or eliminate the, uh, violate the, the terms of my, uh, my identity. And, and so posed in that way, I, I don't agree with any of this, incidentally. I, I, hear, it, I, hear, it, I hear it all the time. But um, anyway, it, it seems to me that that might break down your claim between expression and speech, and that it might establish that, in fact, it is a political community that we're talking about for these students, that they want, that inclusiveness to them means being a part of a community, a political community in which they are respected uh, along the lines that Michael talked about. Um, um, I'll answer it, but I, I think others may have things to say too. I, I think uh, maybe we're not as far apart on this as you think. That, that my concern is that we may, and, and I'm not making a policy uh, recommendation, but that uh, I think you could easily extract from what I said the, the recommendation that freedom of expression is something that uh, we, we can uh, easily consider restricting. That uh, I don't think that and in this sense, I actually agree with a lot of what Michael just said. I don't think we uh, should be inattentive to the to the overtones uh, of uh, incivil behavior, of use of deliberately inflammatory, provocative language, uh, using racial epithets, for example. Although I also think that for me to feel afraid to read a passage out of Huckleberry Finn to my class for fear that I'll be drawn and quartered and uh, marched off the campus for having done so uh, it is a little bit uh, unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, I don't see that taking uh, uh, concern about that. What I think is, uh, is very, and this goes to Lee's point about academic freedom, which again is a different entity from the speech expression dichotomy, but is that, uh, that there are, when, if people, transgendered people come into the academic community and say, okay, uh, we're not going to permit any more research on the premise that, that what we have is something called gender dysphoria or some kind of something that the DSM and whatever version it is now, seven, uh, uh, says is, uh, is, is a sickness or no longer a sickness, you know, that we're going to be, the research agendas will be dictated by that. Charles Murray can't be permitted to come within 500 feet of our campus because he once wrote a book that indicated there might be some uh, relationship between race and IQ, which is, uh, you know, I think a highly debatable proposition, but should it be one that is off limits to researchers because of the offense that it gives? I think not. That, that is not an institution that is dedicated to the pursuit of truth. If, if, it's, if it prioritizes uh, uh, the, the, uh, the wounded feelings of those who are organized and vocal about expressing their, their woundedness, which does them no good in the, in the end, because the pursuit of truth is the good that comes out of what, the work that we do. So I don't, I, I don't know that we disagree that much. I was really, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, concerned that freedom of expression, is, uh, freedom of speech in the sense 
that I've used it is something I, I think we should be very wary about restricting. Although I also would agree with Michael's point that, uh, that some kinds of, uh, that using speech, you know, you can only say so much in eight minutes, but <laughs> using speech in, a, in the sense, of, in a large and undifferentiated sense, doesn't take into account um, there's performative speech. There, there really is, you know, there are speech acts. You know, that, that, that's actually what I think is a very pernicious and problematic term, this notion of speech act, which Pocock and others use a lot. Uh, I think we, not all speech is action. And in fact, the, the speech that's not action ought to hold a particular pride of place in the academy. And the understanding that I can, I can speak to you uh, without giving personal offense, say, one could argue that some, such, a, such is true. And that places the, the, the object of our consideration in that, that buffer zone that I'm talking about. That it's not an affront, it's not an action against you. It's putting up something for consideration in a sort of tertium quid kind of way. Uh, so I hope I... I guess all I'm insisting upon is that this is a speech kind of claim and that it is about the character of the political community that's at stake. And simultaneously, that this is a, 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 in Michael's terms, a rights infrastructure claim. It's a really bad one they're making, that these students are making. But it's still one about, here's what the rights infrastructure should look like in order to promote the conditions of, I guess they still are liberals in some ways, um, that make my existence uh, meaningful uh, but give me respect and dignity. It may be a rights claim. It may be an illegitimate one. Yeah. yeah. Can I just add to this, too? The, I think one of the problems with the infantilization of the students is it undermines academic freedom. It, it strengthens the worst tendencies of the administrative university. But I guess to, to Michael's point, at one point, Michael said that um, we have to respect sensitivities of the students, but it's not a trump card. And I guess the question is, well, why isn't it a trump card? Why isn't someone's deeply felt, sincere belief they're being offended not uh, decisive? And I think the argument is that it's, it's academic freedom is rooted in an idea of expertise, that professors know things, and there should be a certain deference to the knowledge professors have. And if that, so ultimately, I guess that would have to be the trump card, that someone's deeply held feelings, if you're in a university setting, you're respecting the fact that somebody here knows something that I don't. And it doesn't mean they're absolutely right or I can't contest their point of view, but there has to be a certain idea of ex deference to expertise. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak well, to that. I, I guess I would just say that fits into the broader context that I was appealing to in this article, which is to say uh, the distinction between thought, which is oriented towards truth, which in the university setting is what we're about, and uh, it seems to me your notion of knowledge is actually, how shall I say, uh, um, uh, dependent on that. Uh, or, mm -hmm. Yeah, from that. zombie, zo zombie-like uh, relation. Uh. <laughs> Hi, uh, first I want to apologize for my late arrival, but I thought it would remind Michael and Catherine of a days more than a half century ago when I would stagger into Herbert Storing's class at. 10 a.m., about 10 minutes late. Uh, there is a human nature. Um, <laughs> I, 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 wanted, I, I wanted to pursue a little Paul Ray's seemingly, on the surface, claim yes. uh -oh. that you are, to some extent, a West Coast Straussian uh, planted in the Midwest, 
because, and I, I put this in print in interpretation with you some years ago, um, since I think Leo Strauss did demonstrate uh, that uh, with respect to the fundamental account of human nature, including the state of nature, Locke really is Hobbes in sheep's clothing. Uh, there can't be a coincidence there. Leaving aside, of course, the major structural modifications that Locke makes, as, as Strauss says, in the spirit of Hobbes, with a view to defending our individual rights, um, whether just as Locke employs a, a certain kind of rhetoric to elevate Hobbes's teaching uh, and appeal to uh, individual pride as a means of defending our rights, um, whether you too uh, haven't uh, gone further in the direction of, uh, uh, towards Jaffa, of rhetorically elevating Locke um, and to some extent obscuring the connection that really does exist between Locke's, I will say, individualistic teaching and its culmination in the writings of Nietzsche, which somehow underlie the contemporary academic crisis that all of you have so uh, rightly objected to you. So come on out. Are you? I remember the previous version of this discussion had something about your sister in it. That's my main, <laughs> my main memory of that. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I mean, we, we have a different starting point, you and I, in this discussion, which is you believe that Strauss was right about Locke, and I don't. And I've tried to make the case as best I can, and if it doesn't persuade you, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so Harry and I do, I guess we have that in common, that both as to... What we've done, we've given, both of us, we've attempted to give, I think, a, a lock of greater interest, dignity, truth value, et cetera, et cetera, than, say, Strauss did. And secondly, we've done it partly for the sake of salvaging modern, modern life and perhaps modern America in particular. So but with regard to motive and uh, what we've done, yeah, I guess there's more. I, Paul, I take it back. There's more to what, <laughs> more to what you said. Uh, so uh, yeah, but I'd say that, that's, that's about as much. I mean, the difference still is Harry wants to say Locke is Aristotle for the 17th century. And I just don't read Locke that way. I, I don't think that's correct. Uh, and he himself expressed some misgivings about his own made-up truths. He has this uh, famous, I forget now who it was passed on to, maybe Father Fortin. I'm going to, I'm going to teach them, it was something like, uh, um, yeah, see now I've gone out, I've made a claim that I can't actually, it's fake news. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. But it was something like Jaffa was going to present a public teaching that he was going to convince the country to accept. Something to that effect. Um, he said this in writing, he admitted he said it. It was passed on, I think, from Father Fortin is my memory, but I'm not sure that's right. Uh, okay. It was spoken. 
It was spoken. Uh, hearsay, hearsay, inadmissible. So, Paul, you know of this. Do you know of this very thing? Yes. Do you have a better, you have a way better memory of these things than I do, so tell me. Well, I live in the heart of it. Yes, in the heart of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, can I interject a question in, uh, in, in, in this part of the discussion? Um, it, what do you think about this proposition that, that um, what you and, and Professor Tarkov mainly have done in reinterpreting Locke um, has now succeeded in breaking down the distinction between Midwest as a version of Paul's question, Midwest and Western Straussian. After Jaffa, you know, I suppose the, the most prominent representative of the West Coast is Tom West, who, who defends mm -hmm. Locke in more modern terms. Uh -huh. than, yeah, now he does, yeah. Than Jaffa did. Yeah. And in that, and, and, and given that, yeah. is, is, does there remain a difference between the West Coast and the Midwest in this respect? Well, that's interesting. Well, we had a uh, panel not too long ago that Philip also organized. Philip is like the uh, uh, Saul Urock who used to organize a lot of events. Uh, he does that here. And uh, it was a panel discussion. Tom and I were on it and some other people. And Tom at the end said, you know, you and I, we agreed like 80% of the way about, every, about things. So I took that as a capitulation by West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> so Midwest Straussianism, uh, rather, than as, uh, the, rather than the other way around. Uh, is there, does that mean there's a collapse of the two? Well, I, I, I have a, a simple test in mind, which is most of them are Trumpites, and I'm not, or not even close. So how about that? I have frequently heard people use the word Trump on this panel, and I think you may. <laughs> we did. I want to go back to this, um, the students. Um, I think a number of very interesting things have been said about the changing atmosphere on college campuses, whether it's psychology or the administrative structure. But it seems to me that what is fundamentally going on is a reorientation between students and colleges and universities that is due to something that hasn't been mentioned at all, and that's price. I think that when students are going to college and leaving, with enormous debt, that that involves a right on their part, to use a word that's out there, to demand something. They have become consumers in ways in which students in past generations have not. They are going into debt in order to do something. And it seems to me that we cannot deny them the opportunity to express their preferences for what they want, given that reality. Now, it may be that we are perfectly right in believing that they don't know what they should get, that they are misguided in their desire for certain things, but I don't think that changes their right to be far more insistent as to the conditions under which they're going to learn than they have been in the past. Well, all right. I'll, I'll, 
I, I don't think they have that right. I, uh, I, I, as a right, I think it's an understandable reaction, which is something different from a right. But uh, what I think is really interesting, and I agree with what you, I think this is a huge issue uh, for all of us, uh, um, uh, the, the high price of higher education. And, and it's a complicated issue, uh, but uh, I think one of the, um, one of the byproducts of it that we have to consider is, is that when, when, when it becomes a consumer commodity, when a higher education becomes a consumer commodity that, whose primary purpose is the acquisition of a credential that it will allow you to advance in our society, and without which uh, you won't be able to advance, but uh, which doesn't involve the acquisition of measurable skills, you know, in my field of history, you know, there have been several studies. Uh, the the, uh, the guys who did the academically adrift book uh, showed that people knew actually knew less when they graduated from college than than when they came in. Uh, and it, it's <laughs> I don't think those findings have been overturned. They they, they caused much outrage. But uh, uh, if if it becomes this really brute fact of acquiring a credential that is that is inherently I'll just put it in the worst way, meaningless. Um, and for many of them it is, other than a, uh, four years of good times and you know, mating and dating and all that. Um, uh, and if we get to a point where even the acquisition of that credential doesn't help you in, in, a, in a, a job impoverished environment, uh, such as a lot of graduates feel that they're facing now, then, then we have a catastrophe on our hands, that even in the debased terms of consumerism, we have a product that people will decide it's not worth buying. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line is when you make uh, the, the bottom line, when you make something consumer commodity, um, you, what you're really abandoning is the authority of the academy. When I went to college, uh, I, uh, you know, I went to St. John's, so partly, uh, you know, I was going there because I wanted to read the books. The books were the authority, but also the tutors, the faculty. Uh, I actually uh, knew Leo Strauss when he was in residence there, uh, not very well, but uh, um, and uh, uh, it there was a, there was a, a kind of radiant authority that very few people, our our guests here on the other end of the table, being one of them, uh, have today, uh, and we're losing that. We're losing that sense of the authority of the learned person. Uh, this what's happening to Paul Ray's uh, alma mater. Well, it's not your alma mater, is it? But you used to teach there. Yeah, yeah, the, the University of Tulsa. And mark well what he says. I mean, this is this is its highly significant event. What's going on there, and it's going to spread to other institutions. This is something the left and the right should be able to unite around this sort of corporatization of higher education. So, I I, um, yeah, I shared your concerns, but I don't. I, I don't want to say the students have a right. I, what I want to say is we're, we're facing a, dis, a radical uh, disposition of all known pieties about higher education. And I would just connect this to uh, something Michael said uh, earlier about uh, the goal of the university being knowledge, knowledge of truth, right, which is, which is a common good. It's not something that uh, is the sort of thing that can be exchanged or should be exchanged, right, for money or for other goods. It's a common good that can be shared without being diminished. And so, so there is uh, just an inherent tension in uh, universities that are supposed to be dedicated to the pursuit of a common good 
and uh, selling access to it in a, in a sense, right? Or sort of being enmeshed in a, in a capitalist economy um, in the way that they are. There's an inherent, an inherent tension there, I think. And so it's difficult to, to figure out how to navigate this. But, um, but ultimately, either uh, you know, universities are providing a commodity to students that they can purchase, um, or they are uh, guiding students in the pursuit of truth and knowledge. Um, and those two things don't fit very well together. Could I just say, I mean, in some sense, we do recognize a right of the sort Al mentions. Uh, the students are, in fact, not uh, um, coerced into attending the colleges that they attend. They are free to either attend or not, as they choose, uh, or as they, have, as they have the resources that make it possible <coughs> for them to do that. But in any case, they're, they're not coerced into attending. So they do have a kind of right to vote with their feet. The old capitalist right, I mean, they, they, they still have that right with regard to institutions of education. Yeah, and if I can just add a thought, if that's all right. I, this conversation, starting from Vicky's question, I think has really intrigued me. And I think, um, at least I noticed that in the last 10 years or so, I have the impression that students do come with less of a sense of who they are and of their own worth and a lot of insecurity. Think of Locke's state of nature, which it's not quite, but a lot of anxiety and fear, and it's real. And not that all, any of us is exempt from that, we're human beings, but it, it's, it's palpable. And perhaps for that, that search for truth to really take off, the students need to experience the respect and support and unconditional um, listening and openness of faculty, and like to have the, the chance to have that spark of wonder that can really help them take off. And by letting them feel free from their fear and comfortable with being who they are. And so perhaps that, I think Michael's comment of that, that combination of a, of a real search for truth, which means asking uncomfortable questions and, and seeking, being willing to entertain problematic answers, but that, that maybe needs to begin even more than it ever did. I don't know that, but I think in a deep way with, with our work as teachers, somehow giving them that sense that student has that unconditional worth so that they would have the courage to be able to, to undertake that. And so I think, yeah, these are very, very thoughtful points. Uh, but I know there are other questions, so pardon me for taking over the mic. Next. <laughs> hey, Michael. Um, my name is Rob Larvey. Uh, uh, studying my PhD here under Catherine Zuckert and Michael Zuckert. And I taught at Colgate University, and I just finished teaching at Skidmore University, where uh, Skidmore College, where you have a lot of these issues of social justice, especially in the classroom. And I really liked all your points, but they tend to be too abstract and not actionable in the classroom for young faculty. So the question is, what do you do in the classroom, and what do you do during office hours? And I actually found what's quite effective is something closer to a Socratic method, and it seems to actually have worked for me. So, for instance, students tend to begin uh, biased against free speech. You know, free speech is something that's white supremacy or a form of violence. So I just say, if you limit free speech over time, it will be used against you, particularly minorities. So there are public artists who use uh, free speech to question the government and question those in power. And if you limit free speech more and more over time, you'll get something you don't want, which is it'll harm social justice movements and harm protesters and harm public artists who speak truth to power against those who oppress them. Free if you limit free speech, you're going to get something you don't want. 
So don't you want free speech? Isn't it in your interests? So I appeal to their interests and desires, not their conception of rights, because they haven't got really gone through them uh, in detail. So I take their own interests, and then I show what they want and what's, what they think um, would be best for them, something like free speech. And one final example. In my classrooms, we talk about pro-life and pro-choice arguments. And so one student in the middle class said, why do we even talk about pro-life? This shouldn't even be discussed. Pro-choice is obviously the truth. And so, all right, so later on, we're having a discussion. And I just said, what about if you have religious minority groups in the classroom, say, uh, uh, Muslim women who believe in pro-life and want to talk about this in class, should we silence those minority religious groups? And they're like, no, that'd be against social justice. So maybe we should allow more free speech in the classroom to let minority groups speak freely. Don't you want that? Or should we silence them based on what you want? No, I don't. So my practical strategy is to show that free speech is in the interests of um, justice. And uh, what they really want, because the more they limit free speech, they'll get something they don't want. Okay, Catherine Sucret. Uh, <laughs> I applaud Rob's Socratic method of teaching. Um, but I actually don't think that the problem is fundamentally the administrative university or even free speech. Because if you don't think there is such a thing as the truth, and you will get this my entire long teaching career, there is no such thing as truth with a capital T. That is, I think, the issue that has to be faced. Um, and it doesn't do to assert that the university is about the search for truth, because what these people are actually concerned about is the search, from my opinion, to be dominant. And there's a big gap between opinions and truth just as there is now a big gap between the prestige of natural uh, science, which has observable effects, but they don't claim it's true, and the humanities that are full of other tenured faculty members who would tell any student willing to listen that there is no such thing as the truth. Well, Philip Mines, I've read um, Heather McDonald's book, a diversity delusion. The delusion is that students are under attack. And she says uh, there are several philosophers who um, she thinks are ultimately responsible for this um, delusion. She mentions Marx and Nietzsche. And my question is whether in your experience as teachers of political philosophy, you've had students who have um, maybe come in with this delusion, but have, um, um, as a result of your teaching, have um, uh, grown up and abandoned this delusion. Or a second question, what kind of teaching do you think is appropriate for um, remedying this kind of delusion. So, uh, so it does seem to me that the delusion um, that you're describing um, has a couple of sources, um, and one of them might be a, a misunderstanding of the university and what it's for, connected to 
Catherine's point about what's truth. Uh, students don't come to universities trying to find the truth and, and further knowledge. They come for various other reasons often. Um, so that maybe is a problem. And uh, how do you affect uh, students' perception of what they're doing at a university when they're there, well, maybe you have to actually educate them better in the K-12 to space, right, and give them the kind of education at younger ages and the kind of upbringings. And of course, this is a broader social <coughs> issue, too, because what, what are they learning in families and how is that, how's their uh, life in that regard? But, but educate them better at younger ages so that by the time they get to the university, they know what they should, what they should want there. Right, and that they and they aren't uh, preoccupied with various other uh, things surrounding university life, such as uh, being feeling attacked by others and being in complicated social situations. But they're focused on what they're doing when they're there. Uh, Paul Curry, from Arizona State University, just to update uh, the report from higher education about the free speech issue, and to second Catherine's point about uh, search for truth, and. There has been another episode at Middlebury just in the past month, and, and Harvey Mansfield has now joined the ranks of the deplatformed <laughs> at a small institution up in Canada, and he wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. So that's an interesting um, discussion on his part, and he he identifies postmodernism as the as the um, root of that. And then to follow up Adam's thought, I wonder as a constructive. Um, discussion, a set of measures to consider whether, um, uh, I think Michael, someone else mentioned, and there should be some consensus among reasonable left and reasonable right in the university about, about the dangers that this postmodernist expressive um, emotional view poses and the decline of the search for truth. So could there be some um, use of this to to renew the question that Ellen Bloom was posing 25, 30 years ago about general education. About, are, are, we, are we preparing students who may not have come into the, a college or university with an adequate foundation in all sorts of ways to, to understand what higher education is, to understand what it means to be a citizen, to understand this principle and I mention that because we, we, we had quite a few speakers on free speech and intellectual diversity at ASU in our first year. And Jeff Stone was one of them, the main author of the Chicago Statement. And he admitted that there must be something, his group of people, the lawyers, and then more broadly political scientists, something has gone wrong. <laughs> and and uh, the connection also between the universities and schools. If young people have no regard for freedom of speech and the search for truth when they come into the university. So what response from the panel as to whether or not it, it would be worthwhile or totally futile or pyrrhic to take up the question of general education as a response to this? I think that's very interesting. And by the way, one of the things about <clears throat> the Chicago principles is that it pretty clearly they eschew uh, a discussion of truth. I mean, truth pops up in the Woodward report. Uh, it really doesn't pop up in the Chicago. Uh, principles, and I, I think they must have had a discussion about that and sort of saying no. And and uh, Catherine is absolutely right. It, there's no, I'll take it further than maybe she would, but uh, there's no real justification for free speech, even free inquiry, if you don't have a notion of truth. Uh, 
that the truth is, is out there, but none of us can find it by ourselves. That's the human condition. This is a very Bloom-like observation, I think. I want to say something else about this, that, that really in response to your question, that uh, it, it, and it coming, something comes out of some experiences I had when I taught at Tulane, and, uh, um, but, you know, it, college is difficult for all of us. Growing up is difficult for all of us. And, it's, it, and so that when, when kids, particularly kids who come from underprivileged backgrounds or minority students uh, who feel that don't quite feel, uh, they feel out of place uh, in a certain ways, as, as no doubt those, those students at Yale felt coming into this, this uh, environment where surrounded by uh, kids who had been, whose families had been preparing them to go to Yale since they were the age of three, or maybe even minus three, before they were conceived. Um, it, and uh, it, it's, that said, it's, it's, it's hard for them. It should be difficult for everybody. And <clears throat> you're really not doing a student a favor if you allow them to translate every challenge that they experience into an instance of, of discrimination, into something that is a, a, an obstacle for them or some failure, because we all fail and we learn through failure if we're smart. Uh, every failure is attributed to their, their ascriptive status, to their race, to their gender, to their uh, national origin, whatever. Um, we really do them no favors. We, uh, David Reisman, uh, uh, who I have the pleasure of knowing quite well, uh, said they never get the news about themselves. They, what they get is fake news uh, about themselves. And you know, we, we, you need that. There are still fields, I think music is one, where you just can't fake it. I mean, if you can't play the Waldstein Sonata, you can't play the Waldstein Sonata. Out of here, you can't come to Eastman. You're not good enough. Uh, and they have resilience <laughs> to survive in a place like that. There are still fields, and Bloom makes this point about the sciences, that there are still fields where uh, there's a rigorous standard of, of aptitude and performance. Uh, humanities are, are softer, and that's part of their glory. But I, I really I think this is one of the, the real problems for students who manage to fall under the canopy of being a marginalized group, that's now the term of art, marginalized group, is that they can sort of claim their failures. They can explain their own failures to themselves as being the responsibility of others, when maybe sometimes they are, but life is tough, and maybe they aren't. Uh, in any event, you've got to soldier through. Uh, that would be the best advice to give them. But, uh, and I try to do that. Um, and so far, I've survived. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. And so we'll finish this first session now and thank all our panelists. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.